Welcome to the studio, Bertonic. <laughs> oh, man. Welcome <clears throat> to the jungle. Mate, this is fun. Right? Wait, can, can I see, can I, can I flip the screen? Oh, yeah. See what the frame's I'm like. No, 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 I'm not freaked out. There we go, perfect, yeah. So I'll, I'll record the intro later. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. <clears throat> and we're live. How's it going, Richard? It's going well, middle of the pandemic. We've both not been sick for three weeks, so you and I can hang out. Finally. <laughs> it feels like it's been forever, right? I, mean, I know. It was also it's, it's forever and it's not very long. It's like every day starts to merge into one another. But overall, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, my productivity is definitely shot down by a large margin. How about yours? Yeah, I, I think it's it's been really strange because you feel like, oh, I have all this time. There's nothing filling it. But you kind of can't help but take your eyes away from the latest piece of, piece of information. Yeah. I feel like we're all learning new words like serology and you know epidemiology and all kinds of crazy terms that, what was it, the Arno factor or something like that? I mean, just there's so many, uh, I think everybody's learning the phrases of virology and epidemiology, and we have no idea what we're talking about, but it's pretty fun, it's like learning about it. Yeah. But what a weird time we're in. Just it's gotta, super weird. Did you ever, did you ever have an interest in either of those two fields, epidemiology or serology? I can't say I have. Like my, my father's an eye surgeon, one of the, one of the fastest surgeons in the game. And so I've been around medicine and nursing and the National Health Service my entire life, but um, I've mostly mostly been interested in products and software and things like that. So yeah, I've never really dove down the rabbit hole. Certainly not this. Got this magical hoodie That's from right. the I last the conference I went to. What was that? What was that conference? The um, Ethereum conference in Denver. It's called, um, yeah, it's uh, ETH Denver. ETH Denver, yeah. Yeah, and it had the most amazing setup ever. Um, and I feel like it's probably the last time I'm gonna gather together in 3D with a lot of people for a while. So um, it's now I'm wearing it as just a little reminder. Yeah. Well, until <laughs> tomorrow when you get your headset, your VR headset. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've got an Oculus Quest on the way. Yeah. Let me know if anybody else is on the Quest. Yeah. I have loved the Quest and I uh, can't wait for you to play <laughs> it. We can play it together. There we go. Yeah. So, okay. So technology, <clears throat> that that has been like your guiding light, my guiding light. light. It's how we met. Um, well, we should talk about that. It's how we met back in the day. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, I think both of us met each other at a pretty tough period in our lives. Um, we were both staying in this small hacker house um, in Soma that was as cheap as you could possibly get a place to live, but had 10, 15 guys to a room, and it was a, a total kind of Silicon Valley meme. Um, and it, it was an interesting house where it felt like about half the people there did not have a chance and half the people there were like savages who were just taking the cheapest place they could to meet it, uh, to kind of be able to be here in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, I feel like we met an interesting period where you know things weren't working out that well for either of us, and we were trying to reset and re-navigate. And it has been amazing to see the people from that house go on to build all kinds of new projects, work at SpaceX and Tesla and Apple and uber and all kinds of amazing companies and some have built really successful businesses themselves and been involved in other things and there was a real um kind of dna to that to that hacker house despite it being you know uh, quite a sorry place at the time it just everybody who was there 
really wanted to be in San Francisco because there's only way you would accept those kind of living environments for that price. Um, and and it's a side to San Francisco that I think most people don't see because I think a lot of people get that engineering job and then they have a kind of nice flat themselves and they don't see what it's like for people who aren't necessarily on that golden track. Hmm. Uh, interesting times. Yeah, very interesting times. And I don't think we see, I mean, is that a thing anymore? The, those hacker houses here? Oh, in yeah. They're still here? Usually, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, I mean yeah. communal homes are exploding across San Francisco as the rent continues to increase. And there's a lot of them that have kind of turned this into a startup, right? That they've made this, they've kind of institutionalized it, but there's still loads that are really off the books. And, and it's kind of nice because you've got you know, communal living. I, I really enjoy it in many ways. I mean, I've still got roommates and stuff. It's nice not to be alone. But, but it can be exploitative, right? Where, where, they're ch where they're cramming as many people into a room as possible and not making the space nice. So there's a full range. And, and honestly, it's a great way to just meet a lot of people. Um, if you find a good home and a good community, it can be fantastic. But, but I mean, all that's got to change now, right? There's no way I would be living in a house full of 30 guys right now. Um, because, well, yeah, the risk is just too high. Like if, if one of them gets it, you're all getting it. Um, you know, one of the, one of the charities I work with, they have three, uh, homes with more than 200 homeless or addicted folks who are recovering. And one of them caught it and there was 70 cases in, in a, in a couple of weeks and nearly 140 cases out of the 200 people. I mean, it just spread like wildfire. So uh, that's another thing is communal living and shared living spaces and all kinds of things. It's not going to be around for a little while. The new normal, right? Yeah, I think that's what everyone's trying to grapple with, right? What does the world look like when this all changes? It's so hard to predict that I can't do anything but try to predict it. Yeah, you're constantly indexing on things you expect and didn't expect and how it's changing and listening to some experts, ignoring others, being surprised by certain people with their views. It's, it's fascinating. And despite all of this happening right now, we're both in a stage where we're ready for the next thing. Yeah. Well, I think both of us are fairly fortunate in that we don't have families. Uh, we don't have large kind of outgoings and, you know, properties or mortgages or, you know, huge amounts of financial commitments. You know, if I had three kids in college right now in an enormous house, I, I would be extremely nervous. But as, as kind of young men who've got ahead a little bit and got a bit of a bit of a buffer we, we have a little bit more freedom right we're incredibly fortunate where um we're in a position where we, we can work remotely and also we you know don't necessarily have huge outgoings which is pretty ideal when you head into rocky financial territory i mean i, I, I was in university during the 2008 financial crisis and i was running a little business on the side and i watched my mentor buy five flats in edinburgh for the price of one because when cash is, you know, is, when people are desperate for cash, they'll just sell anything to get access to it. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like both of us are in a position where um, we, we have a bit of freedom and we're very fortunate. But you're also just kind of slightly disturbed by seeing just the level of suffering that's either already here or about to hit. So it's, it's full on. It's yeah. full on suffering. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's hard to like go out and have like a super enjoyable experience yeah even yeah and like we're both so fortunate right both had loving parents both had access to great education both had um you know phenomenal opportunities been able to come to silicon valley been men that definitely helps and all these like wind at our back in multiple ways and i'm feeling the like 
deep pain and stress of all these other people. I can't even imagine what it's like if you're, you know, a single mother who's a waitress with or a couple of jobs and suddenly you've got to put food on the table and you get this $1,200 piecemeal check, but that's not even going to cover you for three, four weeks. I mean, you know, at what point do people start rioting? I mean, it's beginning to happen, right? It's, it's starting to get weird. I just heard from a friend in the UK and her grandparents' house was broken into and, you know, they just smashed the grandpa until they told him exactly where all the valuables were and all the jewels and everything. And they ransacked the house. And these people weren't desperate. I think they're like Eastern European gangsters, but, 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 but they feel emboldened by the fact that police are just so busy managing London's health crisis. They have no time for regular policing. Um, and, and you're seeing these riots and, and Florida opening up from quarantine and other places in Michigan, people getting angry. It's just this sense of unrest where... There's those of us that can work from home who are saying everyone should stay home. And there's those of us who have to work somewhere physically and who are losing their jobs, who are just losing their minds. I mean, it's this kind of awful divide going on. How do you think that is going to play out short term? So May 1st is a date that you mm. put out because that's when rent is due. Yeah. And I agree with that. May 1st. I feel like there's going to be some riots. Yeah. It, well, it feels like psychologically April 1st, everyone was kind of just running on fumes and okay. And like, I think from, from what I read, it was roughly a quarter of people didn't make rent um, and just, or just didn't make their mortgage. But to me, it really feels like we're probably going to be at 50% of people not making their rent or mortgage on May 1st. So you're going to have the landlord's rage, the mortgage company's rage, the kind of like uh, tenant's rage and just this kind of bubbling. And, and, and that to me feels like we're going to turn a corner because psychologically, you're so far underwater financially, um, both in terms of you know, personal rent commitments, fixed costs on businesses. Um, it, it feels terrifying to me. Um, you know, when a country is as large as the United States, they can't just put a stay on mortgages and rent overnight, whereas smaller countries are able to do that and kind of keep the wheels turning. Um, but the costs are just going to be astronomical. So, yeah. Super astronomical. And it makes me curious, and you probably, how it's going to affect the tech industry, mm. all the different ways it's going to affect the tech industry. The industry you're in, or at least the one that you're very interested in, is finance, right? Mm -hmm. Crypto finance. Yeah. How, how do you see this? Do you see it already affecting the crypto industry? Yeah. So the, the two areas I'm, I've been involved in are financial technology, where I stumbled through Stripe in the early days, and, and, and Ethereum, where I was involved in the early days there a little bit. Just just both projects just held out a tiny bit, but uh, an interesting period where there were fewer than 30 people kind of hanging around, uh, whether it was the company Stripe or um, the Ethereum project. Um, and, and so watching those two things take off has been fascinating. Now, Stripe has just gone pure vertical. The, the, the merchants they've signed up, they announced since beginning of March, have done a billion dollars in sales. So their brand new merchants who've started brand new businesses and just come onto the platform have done a billion dollars in sales. And Stripe just raised another 600 million at a 36, million, 36 billion valuation. It's one of the largest private companies in the world. And you know, for them, they've always felt that retail occupies kind of two to 5% of, um, sorry, e-commerce occupies about two to 5% of retail. And that at some point that would be 50%. And that if they can facilitate that growth, that would be phenomenal. So I really think e-commerce is, uh, is just booming. I mean, Amazon's at all-time highs. Um, just every payments company I know is, is buzzing through the roof. And, and, and so that, that side of it is, is fantastic. Um, I think where you're seeing a lot of pain is um, 
we had this wave of mania in 2017 where a whole bunch of people sold tokens and people who had no business managing any form of capital were raising between 10 to 300 million dollars of capital that was the kind of range of ICOs and then a few people even over a billion dollars and and we're just seeing an absolute gutting of those projects they were already on their last legs but when bitcoin dropped 50% in a single day and was close to kind of you know smashing into 2000 maybe even 1500 or $1000 um, you know, we really saw a lot of people get liquidated to, to pieces. And um, so it's a kind of cleaning house in the crypto industry. And to me, it feels like the wasteland of the post.com from what I've read, mm. where anybody who's still working on this stuff, you really can tell they're not doing it for the money because there is very little money left um, in the coffers of many of these these organizations. Um, but, but among all that, you have folks who are in a similar position to you and I, right, who have very low costs, who um, are building useful tools and, and and there's kind of green shoots among that wasteland, but but all the large overcapitalized organizations who aren't doing trading or casinos, um, they're, they're they're really really struggling. So it's it's interesting set of things. A lot of suffering, a lot of struggling, even in finance and crypto, which you know at first glance I would think that those that and like healthcare, <clears throat> those two industries are relatively yeah. pandemic proof. Yeah, I think. It but. depends what aspects of the finance you're in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're, if you're really doing something additive and useful, um, then that can be good. If you're a market maker, you just had your best quarter ever. I mean, if you look at all the banks, what's really interesting is they're trying to hide their trading profits. So and not hide them in the sense that you can't find them if you read the statements. But, but if you look at um, many of the banks, they're saying they had the best trading quarter ever, but they're taking out loan um, losses in this quarter, expected loan losses to kind of reduce their trading profits. Um, and that's because market making and spreads were just enormous. It was one of the most volatile months, I believe, in financial history. Mm-hmm. And so they were just doing you know, bid-ask spread, bid-ask spread, and just printing cash. Hmm. Um, so it, it depends what aspect of finance and what aspect of, of, of crypto. Um, my hope long-term is just that um, uh, not that crypto or anything of those things brings down the financial system, but that open-source financial systems become more widely available to countries who don't have access to strong tools like, like we do in the US. And if, for instance, the fastest growing thing on Ethereum is all these stable coins that are kind of pegged to a dollar or there's a dollar in a bank account and a dollar on Ethereum. Those are growing like wildfire and are moving around the network at an incredible pace, about roughly a billion dollars a day now. Hmm. Um, so it's mixed. Some things are positive, some things are really bad. Yeah, so there is growth there for Ethereum. Totally, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's all kinds of, of shoots of growth, but but in terms of supporting a kind of 30 to 500 person organization, just absolutely brutal. Just mm. uh, And that's been really hard for me to see as well, is that so many founders are having to accept that they need to shut their business down in three to six weeks. It took me three to six months to accept my project was, was, was not going the way I wanted it to. And that mm. was psychologically extremely painful. I don't know how these guys are coping, guys and girls who are having to shut down their businesses especially when their employees' healthcare is tied to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a savage. Super savage. Very yeah. American thing yeah. right there. Yeah. Get a job to get healthcare. <clears throat> yeah, it is. And, and that, that's one thing I do love about the United Kingdom is we established a national health service. My father's worked for it his entire life. My mother worked for it for kind of half her working life. And, um, <clears throat> and the wonderful thing about the UK is that we're just trying to look after our people and the incentives are better aligned. So my dad on average, we'll see someone one to two times after a, a kind of retinal surgery, whereas his counterparts in the US will do it 10 to 12 times. And that's because they're trying to you know, pay these crazy school fees and, mm-hmm. and pay off this enormous mortgage and things like that. So it's been fascinating. It's an incredibly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a broken system. It's an incredibly 
flawed system, the American healthcare system, for sure, especially compared to the yeah. NHS. I mean, it's, it's capitalism dialed to 11 in every aspect of America. And so as a capitalist healthcare system, it seems amazing. But it's interesting that healthcare is one of the areas where it seems like market economics don't function. Because in the UK, we're trying to run the whole thing at cost. Whereas in the US, it's drug companies and everyone trying to make their, their, their pound of flesh at every possible you know, uh, level. And, and we're, we're just your entire incentive in the UK, because you know, it is to do more with less. And, and I like to frame it as like socialism with spending limits, where, where we accept this is a societal cost. But, you know, three months, I believe, after the NHS was founded, we put a limit on how number of pairs of glasses you can have. So, you know, we began adding more and more limits. You can't just get limitless healthcare in the UK. You can't, you know, have all kinds of superfluous surgery. But but we absolutely try to keep keep our people healthy. And that that's nice. Yeah. You can't just have like super huge breast implants just because in the NHS, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a... it's although I'd actually, you know, I have to say, I actually believe that there is a body dysmorphia now uh, allowances in certain things, but oh. I'm no expert there. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, it's... Not, it's a bit of a heading off on a random tangent there. Right. But, yeah. but okay, so going back to this <clears throat> open source financial system idea mm-hmm. that you've been talking about, and I, I strongly associate that phrase with your identity. Mm-hmm. W- what does that mean to you? Why is that, why is it important that we have an open source financial system? Yeah, um, one of the things that was really clear at Stripe is that only the Collisons could have got access to that financial system. Uh, and so- if, if Why it, is that? Why, why only them? Um, well, you, you had to negotiate with a bank. Um, you had to get them to change their security practices, um, adapt their systems to take your kind of inputs. And then you are essentially assembling flat files and then uploading them with the file transfer protocol and pushing them into the bank. That's how money actually moves around. That's how the ACH system works um, and how many of the credit card networks communicate. And this required two of the brightest people that have ever been produced from the country of Ireland um, to, to, to kind of, you know, one was a, a national scientist and one was um, one was uh, got the highest test score results you ever have, have seen from a student there. And they had some of the best investors in Silicon Valley, some of the most amazing advisors. Um, and all of them together managed to kind of drive this wedge into Wells Fargo and get access to the financial system. And that was an incredibly impressive thing to do. And I didn't fully appreciate how difficult that was uh, until some years later when I had a little bit of a better understanding about what they went through to get that done. So if you just imagine that there's like 2,000 hoops before you actually get to move money, and they managed to clear all of those hoops, which is Mm. phenomenal. And then I want to contrast that experience with when I visited India and I was at this kind of Ethereum event and these kids had built a kind of option trading system on top of Ethereum in two days. And they were like building like margin trading products um, as scripts running on Ethereum. And, you know, it was essentially like three 30 cents transactions to kick the system off and off it went. And, and you know, since then they've been you know, doing really well and growing their project and, and getting more capital. And you just think... That level of initiation energy required to experiment was just so high in financial technology and the traditional financial system because there's lots of really interesting kind of regulatory systems and things like that. And on Ethereum, the barrier is a few lines of code. Um, and, and, I, and that, I think, speaks to a similar pattern that played out with operating systems where um, you had these various competitors. Um, there were several before Microsoft, but Microsoft was really the most dominant where it had this kind of closed source operating system. It was just trying to 
cover the whole earth in their operating system. And a group of ragtag individuals in the Linux community and, and, and um, uh, you know, free open source, there was a kind of free software foundation, the open source uh, movement. And this community of people with GNU slash Linux is, uh, or, um, together built a competitor to Microsoft that, that kind of camped out around its perimeter and eventually found its way to drive into the system with the Apache web server, which is where Linux found product market fit. And that was just incredible. Like everyone was like, oh, fantastic. We can build a web server for next to nothing. And so we've already accepted that kind of open source operating systems have been very valuable for society. They've allowed a lot more experimentation. And I think that we're hopefully going to see the open source financial systems over a kind of 30 to 50 year period, which is roughly my career. Um, I hope that by the end of it, it has a Linux-like impact, which is not that it destroys the banks, it's not that it destroys governments, it's not that it melts all currencies. It's that every government, every bank, every financial institution needs to connect to this open source system and kind of play on that field. And that overall, it just allows more people to innovate and more people to access the tools. But we'll see. That's, but yeah. that's my guess. I, I hope that's the case. And it, I feel like that has been the case for a lot of a lot of successful startups in the crypto space. You had your own startup balance that ended up not working out, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Could, uh, could you explain what balance was about and what ended up happening? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I was involved a little bit in the early Ethereum project, helped out with a few designs, by no means instrumental, but, but a very early kind of interesting phase where they wanted to visualize some things. Uh, helped out a little bit then. And and then um, eventually a couple of years later was paid some Ether for that, for that work. And, and then in, in 2017, where Ether just kind of went from a, a few dollars to kind of $50, I was just naturally sucked back into the system. I was like, why, what's happening here? This is crazy. And when I came back, I, I felt that like none of the designs uh, of the wallets or the user interfaces or the products that interact with Ethereum were very easy for me to use. I, I was really struggling. I was like struggling to understand how this, this could function. And so I'd been working on kind of user interfaces for banks for a while. We've been doing like a FinTech app. And I decided to just like shift the products to focus on Ethereum. And so over the next kind of year or two, we built out um, user interfaces for Ethereum on the web and mobile and um, uh, tools to connect those things together and um, had tens of thousands of users moving hundreds of millions of dollars around the Ethereum network. Um, but really, there was no clear way to build a business there. Um, because the barrier to entry is so low, anyone could enter. Anyone was building a wallet. A lot of people were raising tokens for wallets. So they were selling tens or you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of tokens for a wallet. And, and we'd raised $1 million. Uh, and, um, and, and absolutely no one is making any money in the wallet business. Everyone has to become an exchange at some point. Um, so you can make money when you convert fiat currencies like pounds and dollars into crypto. And you can make money when you convert crypto to crypto. Um, but building another exchange did not really inspire me. And I realized that it, it wasn't going to work out as a business. And also, I realized I don't like being a CEO. And I don't think that's my role. And so I've kind of pivoted the project more to just focusing on investing. And that's going much better. Yeah. So tell me about that realization. And would you like... Would you class that whole time period as failure? And, and, and how did you deal with the, any kind of pain that came with yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it definitely extreme failure on the management front. I think I, I am not a good manager of resources of people. Um, and, and it also involved um, 
making the company a success and also trying to make my visa succeed at the same time to, to, to actually work in America and be with my team. Um, and so that transition, I think doing those two things in parallel is something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy because it's just so much uncertainty. Like you're so uncertain about your business. You're so uncertain about whether you can actually be with your business um, that it is enormously distracting. And I think that got in the way hugely. Um, and so, and then I, reached a point where several members of my team just felt that the way the project was going wasn't going to work and they didn't want to work on it. And again, that was extremely tough as well um, because you've got to kind of, kind of have this parting of ways, which is which is awful. Um, but ultimately, uh, <clears throat> nearly all businesses die and that is just like a, a thing that you have to accept. And um, I, I think that... Um, Looking back, it's it's really just it was a, a, a misfit in. Um, uh, how can I phrase this correctly? That when you're not on the same page with your co-founder or with your early team, and when you are kind of building towards something different, and when you spend too much time apart and get out of sync, which is exactly what was happening, where where you know I had to travel to other countries and work on my visa from different countries and things like that. Uh, when you're not in the office together, I think it's extremely difficult to maintain that kind of momentum of working together and moving things forward. Um, and so, yeah, all those things are, are learnings. But, um, yeah, there's a reason most companies don't work out. That's a really interesting conclusion to come to. Like, productivity is better in person. It makes sense because of the circumstances. Mm. Given what we know now about the pandemic yeah. and Zoom, do you still feel the same way? Well, I think... It depends on the size of the organization, right? I think when you're getting started and you don't have a real business, um, being together really helps speed things up. Um, any company that scales eventually kind of has remote elements to it, you know, where you have offices in other cities or offices in other countries or um, offices in different time zones. Um, and so remote becomes baked in from some point. Um, but in terms of the core decision making, it usually happens um, together. I'm not sure I can speak to the nuances of that like, company building process. I've only kind of seen it happen from the sidelines a couple of times. Um, but, but now we're, we're forced to be apart. Uh, and I think a lot of people are discovering how much they don't enjoy it. Although doing it through a pandemic is, is not necessarily very fun. I th one of the phrases that I've used is, is I think that remote work is possible and, and good or, or can be good when things are working but it's so painful when, when things are not working, they're falling apart. And that is the kind of likely state for most kind of startups where things are not quite working and you need to fix them. And the other thing is I feel that like remote creation is, is almost as soulless as making a child remotely where you kind of put mm. your eggs and sperm into vials and send them to someone to mix together. Mm. You know, there's just a magic of having lunch together, being around a whiteboard together. I mean, just the interaction we're having here is, is I think, more enjoyable than if we just called each other from right. two sides of San Francisco. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so so I think it's something that's sad that it's being lost and and still will be highly valued. For sure, that human connection yeah. feeling, it's, it's just not there via text or video yeah. chat even. And in some ways, small companies are going to kind of get even more tightly binded. I mean, if you're fewer than 20 people, you probably all want to kind of get on the same page about what your risk tolerance is for the virus. And at a certain point, you're going to spend that time together now and, and just accept that. You won't, and, and your hiring bar will be so high because like, well, do I want to bring this new viral risk into the organization right now? So many new 
opportunities and risks. Every, yeah. uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm in some kind of standstill right now mm. in terms of everything is an investment, right? Like even our bodies are alone from the earth. We have to give back <laughs> when we're dead. You know, yeah. that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I have this scarce amount of energy. How do mm. I invest it given the pandemic? Like, yeah. cause I feel like you're like me in that I want to, I don't just want to invest partly in different things. I want to have everything hundred percent into one thing. Yeah. And it's hard to do that given so much uncertainty. Totally. Um, I mean, and it's also hard Do you think, am I really spending my time on the most useful thing given, given what's happening? Yeah. Um, one way I've kind of justified to myself that I should continue down the path I was kind of on pre-pandemic is you're seeing a lot of banks just lose control of their systems now that they don't have people to move the pieces of paper or to poke the COBOL or the Fortran or the incredibly old code bases. Um, to run the old servers, go into certain basements and buildings. I mean, you're just seeing what happens when the traditional financial system just gets hit by a viral bomb. <clears throat> I, mean, um, I mean, several transactions I've made in the UK have just not arrived at the bank. And, you know, you call up these banks and it's three and a half hour customer service. Um, liquidity is drying up across Europe. Because in the US, you guys can just print the money like that, right? Okay, I mean, you just right. created six trillion out of nowhere. And That's like, us. Bang. Yeah. Right. And, and whereas in the European Central Bank, there's every country competing for when they're going to print those euros. And it's just who's going to get the euros and how they're going to be doled out. And there's so many competing interests. So I think Europe's going to be in a lot of trouble. You know, mm. fascinating to see that the, 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 the UK bank, um, sorry, Bank of England is now sending money directly to the Treasury. That's just never happened before. They always said, oh, no, 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 we're not printing money because, you know, we create new debt and we ingest assets and these kinds of things and, and quantitative easing. And no, 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 I promise you we're not printing money. That just got all blown out of the course. You know, like this is an emergency. The UK system's run out of liquidity. Print the pounds right now and send them to Her Majesty's Treasury. It's never happened before in history. So on just multiple levels, we're seeing the financial system just which is so lean, so built on leverage, so dependent on that next interest payment. And what happens when you just throw a viral bomb that's going to last three to 12 months in? We've got no idea. Uh, and so I am even more um, excited about having open source financial alternatives to the traditional closed source, extremely clunky, you know, extremely old code bases, which I can't have any influence over. Right. Because it requires a lot of capital and power. Yeah, a lot of capital, a lot of power and access to the banks and navigating a lot of steps that I'm perhaps not best suited to do. Um, yeah. And I, and I feel like that feeling of powerlessness is something that a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. Um, I can relate to, you know, um, I mean, just look at where we were at five, six years ago when we first met. Yeah. And where we are now. You know, as, as, as like, you're, like you said, it's a historic time right now in terms of what's happening financially and in terms yeah. of what the opportunities, what opportunities are available for people. Yeah. But we can, we can relate, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of years ago, it, you know, there wasn't a pandemic, but mm. it was still hard to go from zero to one. Yeah. Right. Um, let's go back a little bit. Yeah, like, sure. um, you know, what year did we meet? 2014? I think it was. Yeah. 2014. Yeah, I think it, it was. It was, uh, yeah, around then. So it was 2014. Um, we were in the Hacker House. Yeah. Didn't know anybody in San Francisco. Yeah. And didn't have a job. No job prospects, either of us. Yeah. Both uh, of us applying to lots of places. 
um, getting rejected everywhere. Getting rejected everywhere. I yeah. got rejected by you know 40, 50 companies. Yep. Uh, and I got a job at one med tech company called, uh, it was some kind of like Star Trek recorder device kind of thing, tricorder. Yeah. yeah. I got fired in like one week. Yeah. I was there for seven days. Um, yeah, and I, I had been let go from Stripe and I'd been part, part ways with a co-founder and put lots of money into things that were not paying back. Um, was absolutely at my kind of upper limits on credit cards and just trying to just tread water and stay alive yeah. and trying to get into design and make, make my way there. That was my first kind of foray into your world, mm. seeing the kind of not arguments, but discussions you were having with your ex-co-founder yeah. for sourcing.io. Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, most uh, most businesses fail to build anything of value. And then most ones that build something of value, the co-founders fall out. It's just like the, the, the statistics. Like nearly all companies don't build something useful. And then the ones that do, a, a huge percentage of them have fallouts. And I, I'd fallen out with my business partner at the time, but the, the revenue was growing through the roof. And and, um, and I'd put you know enormous amount of capital into it. And, uh, and it enormous for me at the time, at least. Right. And, um, and uh, you know, just been kind of cast aside. And... Um, and, and, and then both of us have also gone through this experience, you know, you to a much greater extent, we've built this audience on YouTube and tried to keep the kind of algorithm satisfied. And and I've kind of built a, a small audience in the kind of crypto community on Twitter and also tried to keep the kind of algorithm satisfied. And both of us have had these points where the audience has grown and we perhaps have pushed it a little bit with trying to satisfy the algorithm and just had enormous blowback from both communities. Um, and, and I think that it, it kind of isn't until you are getting abused online kind of more than 10 times a day, which is what happens, I know, to me, and I can see from your mentions it happens as well, that something weird definitely starts to happen in your brain. We're like, I'm going on here and most of the things are really positive and the serendipity is amazing and it's opening up lots of opportunities. But people are also going through every single one of my failings and trying to write the most abusive possible thing to me to leave a kind of splinter in my brain. And so, but both of us, I think we would argue is that, you know, YouTube gave you your, fr your freedom and Twitter kind of gave me my freedom. Right? Yeah. And, and so it's this interesting kind of dance with the devil we've had to make with these two algorithms. Um, it is a dance with the devil for <clears throat> yeah. sure. And yeah, I like that phrase that you used. I would call it a digital landmine. Yeah. You know, a digital splinter or whatever. Yeah. But we are so susceptible yeah. to you know, uh, a well-tailored piece of string content, yeah. text, characters. Oh, yeah. That will shift yeah. our emotions. And and let's not be around the bush here. I mean, I mean, you made some mistakes with, with the education content you're building. I made some mistakes with the way I run my company and interacted with certain people. Um, but where most of those things would be, oh, okay, um, you know, my teacher just fucked up at university. Isn't he a bad teacher? And 10 kids get upset. You had to deal with just you know, tens of thousands of people pushing back on you. But, but, and then there's kind of debate around that. Um, I've made mistakes with how I run balance and allocate the capital and interact with certain people. But I had to deal with, uh, you know, a thousand people put money into my project. And though we didn't raise nearly as much as any ICO, I still consider raising a million dollars of other people's capital very important. I want to get that back to them. Nobody put more into it than me and my dad. And so both of us have had these experiences where we have done our done our best pushed as hard as possible and sometimes people can't uh, you know perhaps see 
the, the good intentions. And, and sometimes we push too far. But you do so in a kind of public amphitheater where you just get it slung right back at you. And um, that's why, you know, I reached out to you when, when things were challenging with you. And I know you reached out to me when things were challenging with me. And I think yeah. we have some degree of empathy that it's hard for other people to understand when you are a little bit more exposed online. And again, this doesn't yeah. say it's, we're complaining at all. I mean, both these platforms have delivered amazing things for us. But right. I think both of us also feel like we could now continue without them. We're going to continue yes. using them. But I think I could move on in life without that like I've made enough connections now that I can move on and that feels better I feel more calm about the pro like the, uh, and more relaxed about yes I know how to poke the algorithm but it, it feels like the po it's poking me a little less right like but you don't, don't need it as much yeah yeah I don't need it as much yeah um like I'm okay with that graph that slope just easing off and if it goes up again in the future great but but yeah it is not, the number is not defining me anymore. The number of a million subscribers <laughs> is not, it's not defining yeah. me. I'm yeah. not going to hit it. Um, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, 700K is fine. <laughs> it's passing 70%. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just that. It's just, you know, when I started this four years ago, after coming, after having come back from India and that six month trip there yeah. and seeing, having seen um, so many social problems i was like we gotta go for agi mm -hmm. we just gotta create a digital god that's gonna solve all this sh sure. shit for us yeah, yeah obviously i was 24 and very idealistic yeah totally. now i think we actually have this is going to be controversial mm -hmm. i actually think we have a somewhat overabundance of data scientists right data science is an extremely 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 cool field mm -hmm. but if you look at the blog posts of these data scientists of these big corporations, mm -hmm. their role is actually very marginal. It's actually becoming smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. They are not given enough responsibility. Corporations don't understand the role of data as much as we would like in our mm -hmm. bubble, as we would think. So I don't know if it's, if it's worth it to continue making these data science education videos every week to create more data scientists because maybe the world now doesn't need more data scientists. Maybe the world needs something else. I can't speak to that because I, I don't really understand that field. But but one thing I would observe is any time it's a large company trying to absorb a new direction or a new technology, it doesn't usually happen that way. It's so rare that you're going to see traditional organizations embrace that. I mean, if you were to look at um, Facebook or Instagram or, or, or Stripe, um, they're very data-driven companies. They, they obsess over using their machine learning systems to either poke your brain to get you to click on an advert or in Stripe's case, and in a much more kind of positive way, they're trying to stop fraudulent activity. That's like their entire goal of their system is, is the wider we net we have for data, and the more advanced our algorithms, the better we can detect fraud and the more we can enable commerce on the internet. So I think that probably your analysis of data science, um, I can't speak to like whether it's correct or not, but, but I would imagine um, that I'd be more optimistic on people at younger companies solving database problems than large companies hiring data scientists and, and, and successfully navigating a culture shift around data. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you'd react to that. <clears throat> I guess I'm kind of still forming an opinion around yeah. the role of that specific type of software right. in the world. Right. It's just not as... like. It's 2020. Five years ago, even four years ago, you would think we would have self-driving cars by now. Mm -hmm. You would think we would have 
um, deep learning would be like the de facto language that is super accessible to everybody. Yeah. But it's still not. GPUs are super expensive. Compute is super expensive. And it's actually just not that useful. Deep learning is amazing, but most problems can be solved with linear regression, just like simple, right. simple statistics. Yeah, so you're just slamming into this wall. I mean, what was it Jeff Hinton was saying that we've, we've just hit an intellectual ceiling and or, or what do you call it, like a local maxima or something. Somewhere out there, there's a higher mountain, but we're at the top of a very low mountain. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting. I've had a friend who joined DeepMind the day they were acquired by Google. Um, believe we were actually, that was when we were in um, the Hacker House. I'm watching his career progress, and he's at the point where he cannot leave Google because there is nobody who can afford to run his experiments. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, they are willing to throw so much electricity and so much server time at his and his team's ideas that if he was to go to any startup or any kind of medium-sized company, they just simply wouldn't allocate that kind of budget. So hmm. um, that, I think, is fascinating. Super fascinating to see how that space is playing out yeah. as one of the emerging fields of technology. Mm -hmm. But there are others, right? Sure. Um, you know, we talked about crypto, a little bit about AI. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, you're going to get your first VR headset soon. Mm -hmm. uh, what about, like, the technology on the sidelines? What, what, what are we missing here? It, is there some industry? There's a lot of people who are watching this who are in college, college age, who are looking for their next startup idea. They're just trying to contribute. Mm -hmm. um, is there any field that you you see you see as particularly exciting, an application of software mm. that you see some opportunity from your vantage point? Um, well, I could I could speak to one area I know a lot about and one area I don't know a lot about, but that is quite curious and interesting. Yeah. Um, so the one area I know a lot about is this emerging term called DeFi or decentralized finance, and it's a set of tools that live on Ethereum that move money around. And so we have people building um, kind of uh, trading and exchange and futures and puts and options and swaps and all kinds of uh, financial instruments. Almost every kind of financial instrument that we have on Wall Street and then some has been rebuilt as a pipeline of smart contracts. We have kind of lending systems and derivatives and um, margin-based systems. It's just amazing explosion of all these systems kind of talking to each other. And I think that the kind of rough dollar-based throughput of these systems on Ethereum, these smart contracts, is somewhere in the region of kind of 10 to $30 billion of throughput and about a billion dollars locked up. And, and the growth rate is just off the charts. So just like you can stand up one of these smart contracts. Um, I did one like a, a few months ago and within two weeks it had like $20 million flowing through it and it was just, just going 20% a week has been growing. Um, Wait, where, what $20 million? Yeah, so that one in particular was a stable coin exchange. So it mm -hmm. focused on the, the, the set of tokens living on Ethereum that are marked to currencies. So but there are lots of flavors of, of the dollar uh, represented as tokens on Ethereum. And so this is almost acting like foreign exchange on Ethereum, um, which is, uh, and, and that one was just growing at a phenomenal rate. Um, and then you've got the lending protocols and money markets like compound finance, which is um, also... Um, really popular. Another one called Maker, which kind of takes in volatile ether and then spits out a kind of synthetic stable coin. And then you've got synthetics, which ingests other kinds of assets and spits out assets that track gold and the pound and other things. Um, and this is the emergence of what we were describing earlier, this kind of open source financial system. And so, um, and the, the really interesting about this is that everything you do is open source 
and everything has to be extremely high quality. So it's kind of rebooted the bar for software right the way back up to kind of firmware level stuff where you have to write extremely efficient code and it absolutely has to be correct because if you make one mistake, this thing is gonna get rumbled and lose everybody millions of dollars. You know, in the closed source financial system, you can kind of sequester things away, hide them, stop people accessing certain packets. But when you publish a smart contract in Ethereum, anyone can access it, anyone can hack it, almost anyone can figure out the code from the binaries. And, and so the, the, the bar for software engineering just went through the roof again. And so things like formal verification, functional software, um, techniques that are used in the airline industry and space industry and, and other industries um, are being used and employed to try and check the correctness of these contracts and kind of stand up code against not just test suites, but kind of mathematical proofs of the correctness of these smart contracts. And so if you, if you kind of wish you weren't writing a shitty web app and just throwing it on the internet and pushing updates and you actually kind of long for spending enormous amounts of time on the correctness of your code and perfecting it um, that might be the kind of mind that is interested in this and, and you know feel free to reach out to me on twitter anytime if that if that sparks your interest and so so yeah. that's something i'm deeply obsessed with hmm. um happy to talk about other things that DeFi. i kind of guess no no, no yeah. that that's that's quite a yeah. topic that's quite a huge topic yeah um Interesting. So, you know, I'll admit some of the terms you're using are, mm. you know, a little foreign to me just because they're totally. kind of domain knowledge. But yeah, when you when you mentioned these tools, do you who who uses them? Is are these tools for banks? Yeah, I think today they're largely for speculators to kind of get leverage or or kind of obfuscate their um, uh, obfuscate where they're doing their trading activity. So make no mistake, this is still a casino that's being built. But there is an emerging set of people um, from businesses who need to send dollars to countries where it's hard to send to the two, um, to people who want to kind of manage their finances and have control of their money. Um, and, and I would say that the number of people that are kind of genuinely using this for kind of real economic activity is going to be less than 100,000. The number of people kind of using it for trading and leverage and, and kind of speculation, probably somewhere in the three to 400,000 range. But the dollar value flowing through all of this is just skyrocketing. It's just every month the growth is kind of 10 to 30%. And if things keep growing at 10 to 30% a month, it doesn't take very long for this to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And then as soon as it's in the trillions of dollars, um, then we're really you know, at the point at which people will take notice. Hmm. So I think there, there is a world where this connects to the traditional banking system. There is a world where regular people use it and they don't know. Um, and those worlds are coming, but we're still in the stage of it just being kind of built out. Um, it feels like doing email from your terminal right now, mm. but, but, but like, my goodness, is it improving fast? Yeah, I can definitely see, you know, just on your Twitter, some of the cool things that people are doing. Mm. Uh, you know, some people might know, but, uh, you know, I was also into crypto a few mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. I took a different path, went for yeah. data science, but, you know, I wouldn't say I was disillusioned, but I was kind of disillusioned. Yeah, I think I, I you was were too. too. You were Definitely, too. Definitely, yeah. I yeah. mean, certainly during 2017, when you're watching people who have no idea what they're doing, which it was the same bucket I was in, but raising 10, 30, 40, 50, 100 million dollars and splashing it all on fancy cars and nice Airbnbs and trips around the world and just shipping absolutely nothing of value. Um, it's incredibly depressing. I mean, it really attracted the snake oil salespeople of the world and they're all gone now and kind of flown into cannabis and other things. Hmm. But it, it was um, really disappointing. And I think just nearly everybody has lost money on crypto, right? Nearly everybody bought on that gigantic run up and it has crashed 90% since then. So 
to me, it feels like 90 to 95% of people lost money on crypto so far, which is also not good. Um, and the, the proliferation of all these tokens that had absolutely no utility whatsoever, and the, the, the kind of unbelievable claims about some kind of new world were just so unbelievable. What was weird is when, when, when ETH crossed $1,000, and you know, I got my ETH at 30 cents each, I've never been more depressed in my life because I was getting my phone ringing off the hook. My, everyone was messaging me asking, should I buy now? You know, I know it's gone up a lot. And I just realized that every one of the ether that I sold of over $1,000, there was some absolute chump on the other side buying them. Hmm. And I felt, I felt bad, honestly. I felt like, uh, you know, thank you for your sacrifice. But who knows if it was someone with a credit card or someone who couldn't afford it. I mean, yeah. So I, I think you're right to be put off. And the entire kind of tech industry has, has kind of relegated crypto to the side and felt it's an extremely distasteful industry. And I, I don't think they're wrong on the whole. But hmm. these great teams, these new teams, these people who are frugal and passionate and humble and who are valuing their projects at kind of three to $10 million and raising a few hundred thousand dollars to get them started, totally different vibe. And it really feels like these people are very exciting to be around. So that's why I kind of point to DeFi is just because I can finally say to you that the quality of the individuals building things in this space has completely changed since 2017. And that the kind of expectations are very large, but the, but the valuations are sensible. Whereas before, the expectations were just ludicrous and the valuations were equally you know, astronomical. Mm. And so now it feels much more like startups. That's great. That's promising. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, the AI community has, you know, mm. Intel invited Flowrider to some science conference last year or something. Yeah. And it's 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 become a little too um, glitzy and glamorous, similar to crypto. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've both industries have gone through this hype phase where we thought, oh, wow, we're turning a corner here. It's a brand new world. And actually, we're probably at the beginning of a kind of another 30 to 50 year phase. And it just, because yeah. you need the power brokers to die, right? You need like the heads of banks and the people who don't believe in machine learning and other things. Like There just has to be a kind of cleaning house of older people with bad views before the young and energetic and new people get to move up the ranks, amass power, amass capital, amass teams, you know, rise up the kind of executive suite and start to drive these new ideas forward. And, and certainly in finance, it's just gonna take three to five decades in my opinion. And with machine learning, I think it's probably just, uh, it's a kind of reset of expectations and a, a kind of finding those real applications where it makes a difference, right? Self-driving just, does not function. I mean, my, my parents nearly died in a Tesla. That's right, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Did Elon ever reply? Uh, no, but some people from Tesla did. So the yeah. context here was that I think that they're self-driving, they relatively correctly market that as beta, but it's their cruise control, which mm -hmm. unlike all other cruise control, which involves, I believe, hardware and radars and stuff that's kind of tried and true technology, their cruise control also runs on machine learning and computer vision systems. And it just had a bug in the middle of the motorway and just slammed on the brakes. Uh, I was absolutely... You know, I was distraught basically. I was just like, I told my dad to get this car. It's the first new car he's ever bought. Yeah. And it nearly killed my parents. My God. So, not good. Not good. Not good. Yeah. Life is so unpredictable, isn't it? It is. Goodness. You never know. Yeah. There's so many different feelings that we get from things that are distasteful or, yeah. um, you know, depressing or frustrating or angering. Yeah. One thing that I've always liked about you, and some people might think this is weird, is the fact that it's really entertaining when you get really worked up and kind of angry about something. <laughs> what What is something recently that kind of frustrated you 
or just kind of um, pissed you off? Yeah. Or do you um, feel like you've just been chill recently? I don't think I've, I've ever been chill. That's um, right. And part, and part of that is, uh, you know, to be totally frank, I'm, I'm bipolar type too. And, and what that means is I go about 50% up and 50% down from outside the range of regular people. Everyone has ups and downs. But I would say my ups are pretty intense and my lows, I can be kind of incapacitated. Thankfully, I'm not bipolar type one, which I'm, I'm surrounded by a lot of those people through group therapy. And they can kind of get God mode where they literally think that the, you know, the coming of the Messiah and then suicidal where they make attempts on their own life. So mm. I definitely have a, a, a proclivity and um, dispensation towards extreme moods. But, but, but outside of that um, and those ups and downs, I definitely get fired up about things. And I think that's because I've been around. My father is an incredibly kind of ethical person. My mother is straight and narrow. And I've entered industries which are full of shysters, and it fires me up. Um, but something I got very angry about recently, um, I would say, has been the um, things I have learned about the homeless community in San Francisco. Now, everybody and their dog complains about homelessness in San Francisco. Yeah. And I, you know, had read the same articles that everyone else had read, but I really didn't know what I was talking about because yeah. I'd never really talked to any of those people. Um, and so the last six months, I've been spending a lot of time with this charity called Back on My Feet, and it has a really lovely principle, um, which is let's just f find folks who are going through um, addiction recovery or homelessness um, rehabilitation and go for a run two or three times a week with them and just hang out. And it has been so eye-opening. Um, um, but it has also caused me to be quite upset on a few moments um, for, for, for different reasons. Firstly, everybody has it wrong about San Francisco. It has the best care for folks who are battling in many cities in America. It is the only major metropolitan area where AIDS is dropping. So although the lived experience for San Franciscans is seeing, yes, some shit on the streets, yes, a lot of people in certain neighborhoods destitute in certain corners, the lived experience for a lot of the people trying to get access to systems and healthcare and 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 help is it really impressive and getting better. Now, is it good enough? No. Are 30,000 people sleeping rough every night? Yes. Gosh, it's terrible. But I am so impressed with how these systems have held up despite rising demand as rent has gone up. So mm. I get pretty angry about um, listening to tech bros kind of pontificate about homelessness and, mm. and kind of dismiss those people. Um, and also, many people dismiss them as just kind of hopeless addicts. But while they do turn to addiction, uh, sorry, they do turn to drugs, a lot of times they leave because of their finances are in disarray, um, a medical bill blows them out of the water, a divorce you know, threatens them financially and in terms of their home security, or there's domestic violence and they simply don't want to be at home anymore. So there's all kinds of reasons for homelessness that are not linked to drugs, despite a lot of folks, unfortunately, turning to drugs when they reach that situation. Um, so I guess just hearing it from regular homeless people's um, perspective two or three times a week, I just try and listen. I go for a jog and we get along because I don't talk to them like I know I'm any better. I think if I had been growing up in some of the homes they grew up in, I'd be you know, in a challenging situation as well. And then when you go to these dinners where people moan about it, you know, sometimes I keep my tongue shut, but you know, mouth shut. But like, oftentimes I reach a point where I just have to, you know, put my foot down and really push back hard on all of people's assumptions um, because they're wrong, and they're, and and I don't mind that they're wrong, but that's that, that's fine. You know, I was wrong, 
but um, it's the dismissiveness which I find mm. irritating. Especially on Twitter, right? Oh, yeah. Where do we even begin with Twitter replies? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, cool. we're going to talk about dismissiveness. Twitter is, I think it, it, it is rewarding brutality in a way that's quite terrifying. Um, that's yeah. social media in general, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I, I've kind of classed, there's this new set of apps I love that I call sociable media. So there's House Party, where you can just kind of easily form video chats with friends of friends. So you kind of go, hey, oh, Siraj, this is my friend there. And you can kind of make introductions, and it's really nice. And then the other one is Marco Polo, which has been enormous for me. And if any of you have family in multiple time zones or multiple cities, I highly recommend it. Because it's like video voicemail done right where I just leave little video voicemails for my family. And so in a kind of asynchronous way, I can really stay in touch with a lot of people. Um, so I, uh, there are some apps that are getting it right, but certainly we can say that the public discourse on Twitter and Facebook is just depleting. And never mind YouTube comments, my goodness. Oh, yeah, YouTube comments yeah. are different. <laughs> a whole different story. A whole different kettle of fish. But I feel like some social networks are pretty um, tame, like LinkedIn is yeah. pretty tame. Like yeah. no one's going to like... Uh, drop fire there. On, on LinkedIn, yeah. Yeah, because it's kind of this cranky digital resume. resume. I mean, what yeah. a great example of monopoly over the network just allowing you to keep your product at, at such a low grade. Mm. I mean, everyone ever always quotes Reid Hoffman as saying, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your app, then you haven't shipped soon enough. But I mean, if you're not embarrassed by LinkedIn right now, <laughs> uh, like as a, as a piece of software, I mean, you just have zero taste. Yeah. And so if there's one area where I'm, I'm optimistic for crypto and hopeful in, in the very long term is I would love to express my relationship to you in an open source way. And, and like, I would love to be able to like my friend Siraj, who I've had a professional experience with in these ways. And like I follow on I follow his videos and I follow his tweets like that right now is all stored in databases run by five men who live in Silicon Valley. Right. I mean, that, that is basically it. So we have digital kind of fiefdoms controlled mm -hmm. by monarchs. And I want to express those relationships in a way where other people can build on top of that. And so I'm excited for the experiments there. We're a long way off anything catching fire, but... There's Mastodon. Fun. Do you use Mastodon? I've played with it, but again, that's the kind of thing that's built by engineers with no taste and, and um, yeah. doesn't, re doesn't really speak to like great product development. But again, another exciting, exciting experiment. People are going to build on that. You know, to me, it's like Bitcoin was a confluence of like 20 failed projects that finally succeeded. Mm. Um, something like that is going to emerge where it all clicks together. And there's a reason why having it on a crypto network makes it better. Right now, there's no reason it's better. It's just right. like clunky, clunky Facebook. Um, so something's got to make it better. It's got to have not just that feature of not having a middleman, yeah. but also great design. Definitely, yeah. Like no one's going to use it because it's like private or use it because it's open source or anything like that. Yeah. To me, it's like maybe a hundred social networks that tailor to certain people, but agree on a common social protocol. Maybe that kicks off or, um, you know, yeah. email is a protocol that defines sets of communication. And we just didn't have that for social. Right. And what emerged was, um, uh, was Facebook winning. I mean, I believe the team behind, not Feedly, but... Um, uh, another one of those early kind of feed products with Paul Bookhite, the creator of Gmail, and uh, one of the guys who created Quip, who's now CTO of Salesforce. They 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 mm -hmm. they were acquired at Facebook to kind of re-engineer the feed and make it even sleeker. Hmm. So they definitely experimented with these kind of things. But both Twitter and Facebook and every social network has realized let's limit API access, let's stop people doing it, and let's not let people build open systems. Um, but Jack put forward something called Blue Sky, which is meant to be an open protocol for social and tweets. Oh, yeah, so we'll see. 
Yeah, that's that's super exciting. Yeah, super exciting. And again, we'll probably push the ball forward. Probably won't be the winning thing because how hard do you really work when you're on 300K from Twitter? The answer is not that hard. How hard mm. do you work if you have next to nothing and you need to make your thing work? You know, mm. Pretty damn hard. Um, so yeah. 300K, what from Twitter? I'm just like, uh, opens, open, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Blue Sky has been funded and you know, most engineers on Twitter are on... 150 to 200 plus about 50 to 100 of stock options. Mm. Um, in general, I've not encountered many people who are paid that well who still have the work ethic of startup founders and people who need to make their project succeed. Yeah. Um, so not, not bullish on that being the protocol that succeeds, but very excited that Jack is willing to invest in that as an idea. And, and Jack, let me know what you think of him. But mm. from, you know, I don't know him personally, but he just seems like a great, kind human. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like all people who reach that level, you're able to manufacture your image yeah. um, in a way that um, is amazing. I've, I've never spent any time around him at all, but I have worked with people who've worked directly with him. And it sounds like he was very challenging to be around as a human being. Mm. Um, I mean, um, but, but I think there's also just a sense that if you build anything of scale you just have to get a lot of human beings to do what you want. And that experience isn't often smooth sailing, particularly when you go from zero to, to 100, right? Like a lot of people can be good kind of professional CEOs of large companies where they come in and steer the ship and massage things. But when you kind of have to take a little boat out into the, into the Atlantic and keep building on it until it's this massive thing, um, I think there is something about the creation of new ex organizations inside one's own lifetime, inside even just 10 years, that there's, there's, there's no easy way to get that done without ruffling a lot of feathers on the way. So, uh, I mean, certainly folks who've worked for Stripe, I've heard, have just, you know, been pushed to the absolute brink. We have a friend who was in the house, actually, Rudy, who joined SpaceX. He's been there, what, mm -hmm. nearly seven years now. Um, if he shows up, 10 minutes past seven, people are like, you know, why, why are you late? Wow. What's, what's going on? I <laughs> mean, you know, That's do you crazy. have a kid? Do you have a, a spouse now? No? Well, what the hell are you doing late? I mean, he still is there early in the morning, almost no time for holidays because they genuinely are a cult. And that's something I think about a lot is like, how do these cults form? How do these kind of alien-like leaders like, you know, Vitalik, Ethereum and Patrick at Stripe and Jack with Twitter and Square form this kind of assemble these Jedi, these amazing people around them and, and build these cults? And I don't think it can ever be done by being that nice. Mm. Um, I think that it can be done by realizing that this is what society needs um, and society needed a good payment system for businesses, which is why Square's done well and Stripe's done well. Society needed a way to communicate that was not the traditional media channels. I mean, look at just CNN and their lacking influence and just all these media conglomerates just getting wasted away by essentially funneling all their content through Twitter. And when, when you build something that society needs and, and scale it enormously in, in less than 20 years, it's, it's just brutal. There's no other way to describe it. That's something to observe. Yeah, he's a warrior for sure. Yeah. yeah. That might be a better word than nice. Yeah, but, that's different. You know, I guess the point I was trying to make was 
it's weird. It's it's weird mm. how regardless of how Jack or any of these founders are as people and their character, yeah, the product they've created, the newsfeed algorithms mm. that they've inadvertently created, yes, is in some ways like a runaway AI in that they totally can, they can't yeah. control it. Absolutely, yeah, you know, and there's no market for these algorithms. We're just stuck with the one that the company gives us. That's a great point as well. Yeah. Do you envision a world where there are options for the type of algorithm? we have for our personal newsfeed? That is the express goal of the Blue Sky team, which is define the content standard for social, and then define ways in which people can develop algorithms to summarize your feed, and and, and, and then allow people to kind of pick from those flavors. Um, and it does end up, you know, people already assemble their own worlds by who they follow. I've got really into Twitter lists where you can define lists that are in the header of your iOS app, and so I can start to kind of jiggle a few feeds myself and, and feel what it's like when I just follow women, feel what it's like when I follow Trump supporters who I want to understand because I do think they're going to win. And I feel what it's like when I follow the security community. So those are the kind of feeds that the worlds that I slide between now on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm very excited to see more experimentation there. Um, for instance, I would, I would love, I probably there is an algorithm that is better suited for bipolar folks. Uh, I wonder what that would look like. Mm. Um, what would it hide from me? What would it show to me? Um, there's probably an algorithm that would help people who are depressed. There's probably an algorithm that would help people, women who are insecure. Um, there is probably an algorithm that would help angry men. Mm. Um, who knows what they look like? I'm, I'm so on board with that. Mm. Um, you know, there's this kind of there's this term that's starting to trend. It's been a few years, but digital therapeutics, mm. right? You know, we have Americans love drugs, prescription drugs, totally. to change our depression and you know states of being. But yeah, you know, information mm. through our you know phone screens or Neuralink or yeah. know, something, some input can change our mental health. The question is, could it treat a virus? Even mm. uh, that, that's kind of out there. But mm. you know, could is there some? What I'm trying. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Is there some possibility space of information? that if input into our senses could treat or cure a virus or fight a virus or cause some sort of reaction. You know, I'm, I'm just mm. taking this, you know, Vijay Pandey, who's a, who's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, mm-hmm. you know, he's invested 10 million in biotech and he's just kind of trying to see where this field of medicine is going. Like eventually, are there no chemicals? Mm. Is, is, is medicine, does medicine just become pure information? Mm. I think that's like a really interesting. Wow, I've never considered that before. I mean, one thing my dad has always said is that laughter is the best medicine in the hospital. Um, And I think that's fascinating. Um, Certainly, my obsession with diffuse lighting has totally changed my mood. When I'm home in my basement, every single light is diffuse and kind of glows into the corner, um, which just has a transformational effect on my brain when I go through it. Comparing it to kind of bright, heads-down, oppressive LEDs, when you have glowing corner lights that don't spread light directly into your retinas, mm. just has a huge effect. Um, certainly, I'd, I'd reached a point where I had about three months where the phone was absolutely not in the bedroom. Um, it has since returned now because I feel the need to respond to certain friends who are getting broken into and attacked and business shutting down. Um, but that certainly had an effect. Um, I, I can't speak to the idea that the that, that, pure information could replace biochemistry I mean that that but I could imagine I could imagine certainly for mental health a set of digital therapeutics being um, competitive to things like lithium that I've tried that hasn't really worked well for me 
One thing that's been enormously helpful for me is, is transitioning from one-on-one -on -one therapy where I didn't really understand the other person and they certainly didn't understand me to, to, to group therapy where, um, where every single person in my group is experiencing the same kind of ups and downs or more than me or less and sharing their own experience with it. That has been, you know, essentially a 3D space I enter and I talk to other people and now it's just a Zoom call, but it is really helpful. Um, it's a digital community now and is, you know, a set of pixels and sounds and every time I talk to them I think, okay, I'm really glad I'm bipolar type 2 because that person is having a real battle and I'm learning a lot from that person who's way further ahead than me. Mm. Um, so yeah, I can certainly be persuaded that helps in mental health. Um, Therapeutic algorithms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what, yeah, what does it look like when we have that her-like system that can really talk to us and know us? Who knows? we got our own girlfriend in our pocket. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. You know, another crazy thing is just like over the years, I think both of us, we were more interested in the chase, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of women. And I, and I think now... At least for me, not as much. Um, I think that that phrase can be quite loaded. I think um, everybody goes through a phase where they where they date people and they um, you know try things out. I, I've never been able to stay in a country I wanted to for a long period of time. Um, you know, I've um, always been on three to six month business or tourist visas and then had to leave. So just by the nature of my lifestyle, it's been hard to maintain like, long-term relationships. Um, and I, th I think everybody reaches a phase, I don't know if you've seen this, but as more and more of your friends start to kind of settle down, get married, some are buying houses and having kids and things like that, it does make you think more about what's the kind of person that would want to spend not just time around me, not just have fun, not just go for dates and do the nice things, but they would put up with the worst parts of me over, you know, multi-decade time period. Um, I know I'm not an easy person to be around for for days on end, let alone goddamn years on end. I, can, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be around me for years on end. Um, so that's something I've been reflecting on a lot. But yeah. Yeah, I guess I, you know, I know this topic is kind of left field, but I, I just yeah. I think it's important because no, I mean nothing more important. Nothing more. Nothing more important, really. I, I couldn't think of anything more. If you want to start a family and have children and um, have an enjoyable life, so many uh, people who are older than me just speak to how rushed they were in moving into that, that commitment with somebody and how out of sync they were and how destructive a divorce was both to them, their partner, and the kids they made. So... It, to me, it's the ultimate big decision that can actually have real FOMO and real negative consequences on your life that's really hard to reverse, especially when you make a new human. There's just a one-way stage to that where you will always be binded by that parenthood. So to me, it feels like an enormously important decision if you decide to kind of make that link with someone. I think that's a very mm. freeing thought to think about that. Like, mm. this is actually the most important thing. Like, actually... Mm finding a startup idea and successfully yeah. going through with it isn't the most important thing in the world. Well, it is to some people. Uh, some people, you can tell their company is, is everything to them. But I, I've noticed that the best CEOs also have this incredible partnership going on in their lives. 
Um, there's a sense of stability and confiding and part, you know, um, companionship through the darkest periods of running these organizations. Um, but one way, you know, you can frame success in your own mind however you want. For my parents, it was having enough money to do the things they want, being able to spend time with each other, being able to spend time apart, being able to spend time with us, being able to travel, being able to see family. Like My parents, I would cast them as some of the wealthiest people I've ever met because on the wheel of life, they were kind of seven to eight out of ten on the ten most important kind of spokes on the wheel. Um, whereas I've met richer men than my dad, okay, but most of them are miserable or cheating on their wives or kind of like not spending time with their kids. Mm. And I've met, you know... Um, I've met perhaps fitter or people who are better at their hobbies than my dad, but they didn't also contribute to their community and you know do work that was really meaningful and everything. So you know, life you, you life can kind of be rounded or, or kind of oblong shaped, and, and if it's oblong shaped, you can excel in that one thing, but you're gonna sacrifice others. And I've grown up around people who are very rounded, and I think I'm probably slightly more oblong. And then the most extreme high performers are usually very strange shapes, right? They're just mm parts of their life, like drinking or hanging out with friends, they just don't participate in. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the Collisons have been, as examples, have, have been building those companies since they were 19 and 21. And, you know, I think they operate at a high functioning rate for kind of eight to 12 hours a day, six days a week, just nonstop. Like, and, and, and that, that is a huge sacrifice. It's um, huge. Yeah. So there's different ways to frame success and it kind of depends on you. Mm-hmm. But certainly, if, if you're going to define your company as everything you are, then it's pretty terrifying. Super terrifying. It's also, like, an easy thing to do, I feel. 100%. You know? Yeah. Yeah, your balance was me, I was balanced for a while. Your YouTube channel and you being the data science personality, that was you. And you know, but, but you are so much more than that. I'm so much more than a random web application. Right. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very easy to say that. It's very hard to feel it. It's hard um, to feel it. It's really hard to feel it. And and so you can intellectually appreciate that this company is not you, but when it is contracting, failing, and dying under your watch, it just feels awful. Right. Um, it, it's like this. It's like social media, Twitter, YouTube, and just society in general kind mm-hmm. of wants us to specialize and mm-hmm. focus on these and define ourselves as these you know two or three things on our Twitter bio. But yeah. we're more than that. Yeah, definitely, and um, I know I think I think that that's correct. I'm not sure even that society necessarily wants it. It's that um, uh, we're playing different kinds of internal status games, right? Um, but I think that we're starting to see a shift in mentality around a few of these things. For instance, I saw this phrase on Twitter that I've become obsessed with, and I've now called myself this. It's just, it's just, I love the phrase "a time billionaire." Yeah. And I, I find that fascinating because I don't know why, I just lodged in my head that that's what you want to optimize for, right? That, that it's not the money necessarily, but it's the it's if you have 12 months of savings in the bank, you are in the like top 1% of top 1% of top 1% of like free time people. Are you? I really think yeah. you're in that kind of restaurant because you have high earners, right? People with huge incomes, but massive outgoings, right? And if you ask them, could you just hit pause on your life right now and just chill for 12 months? So many people with six-figure incomes would, would not be in that position. Mm. Like, and they, they are kind of running on a treadmill of earnings that if you just knock them off the treadmill for three months, as this virus has, they are absolutely panicked. I mean, some of the most panicked calls I've had are from ostensibly super high-earning people 
who've just massively leveraged their lifestyles. You know, for people who have next to nothing, they're used to having next to nothing, right? For people who have a medium amount coming in and spending it all and then some, they're not used to being knocked off the treadmill like this. So finding those phrases that lodge in people's heads, and certainly I've become enamored with the idea of a time billionaire, a control of one's calendar. How much of your week do you have control of? I mean, Suraj, I think you have control of nearly your entire week. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is an almost unheard of existence. Uh, and that is, we're not parents, we, we don't have spouses, uh, we don't have mortgages to mortgage observations to meet, we've got to pay a bit of rent and things like that, and pay for some food and a bit of insurance here and there. But like, in general, this, this, this level of time freedom is, is phenomenal. It's super phenomenal, and we gotta contribute. Yeah. You know, we are, you are. Um, I guess I do. You know, I've, I've I got to figure out what that next step is for me. Yeah. And to me, I said this today on Twitter, and this goes for anyone. If anybody is interested in front end engineering or design, any field, startups, just wanting to make themselves kind of more appealing to employers and get that kind of zero to one first job or anything, please just send me a DM on Twitter. Happy to help. Happy to look at your portfolio. Happy to to talk about what I think employers want to see, connect you to people, help you get a foot in the valley. Absolutely all of Silicon Valley is built on paying it forward. Yeah. And that is what's so addictive. That when you get in that flow here of paying it forward, that's why people stay, right? When right. people get out of that flow, that's why they leave. Right. And, and so if anyone's interested in moving here, or anyone's interested in working at a company or particularly kind of design or front-end engineering, that's where I could be most helpful. So that's one way we can give back is even in this environment, I know teams that are hiring and and um, would love to kind of connect you to them if you're interested. Definitely. Yeah, definitely do that. And yeah, I thought about as, that as well, you know, with my audience, just connecting them to job offers and stuff. Yeah. And that, that's a, that, I feel like that's an easy low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just looking for that that special thing, that, mm. that idea or that purpose that's just going to, you know, take over. Maybe, I mean, that's the path of some people, right? That, 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 like, they just say, I need to make an online bank that will just be the best thing ever. Um, and like, you know, one of the, the first employee of Stripe right now is building an entirely new bank from, from scratch. And I'm just so excited to see that take off. And, you know, somebody's like, I need to build a blockchain that you can code on, like Vitalik. This will lead to societal superstructures. And he just like, focuses on that for a decade or two. But there's also people that, that are investigative, investigative, that are generalists, that kind of flip between fields, that research the perimeters of this field. I mean, you've explored crypto and finance and med tech and Twilio and APIs and, and bio and AI, machine learning, data science. You know, there's a Venn diagram of things you've explored and the overlap you might sense. So, so maybe you find that light bulb thing that you need to focus on for 10 years, or maybe it's you connect a lot of people in interesting ways. I don't know what it is, but but one way you can know it feels good is if you're spending more time in that flow state. And I definitely mm-hmm. feel that when I'm making things and product and design. You can feel your brain in that like wonderful flow state where time just slides by and you feel oh, magic from my fingertips. And the more percentage of time you can feel like that, then that's probably like a good sign. That's a great metric. Yeah. Not a flow state. Yeah. You know, if I can get one to two weeks a month of great design out of my brain, I'm really happy. I mean, it's usually three, to, usually two to three weeks of me banging my head against the laptop thinking this looks terrible, but, hmm. but then the magic happens for a few nights and you're like, ooh. I love the fact that you have sustained enthusiasm for design over all of these years. Mm-hmm. 
in that way, you know, I've done coding and video production and editing and all that stuff, but mm. um, what I think will never get old for me is uh, technical writing, right. doc documentation. Yeah. I'm like a documentation nerd. So yeah. I know that, you know, worst case, I can just keep writing documentation yeah. for cool projects and, totally. you know, connect people to jobs. And But it's also just weird being a social media, someone who has you know, been lifted up by the community yeah, and then, you know, been dissed by the community. Mm -hmm. And then I just kept making videos and, uh, it's just a weird place for me to be in, in terms of, uh, you know, there's so many great creators now who are making AI education content. Mm -hmm. And, you know, four years ago, if we, you know, went to YouTube, typed in neural networks and hit enter, you see like maybe one or two videos. Totally. Now there's hundreds by hundreds of different, totally. very interesting people. So, you know, I guess that's competitive, you know, there's just competition. Yeah. There's more competition, which is a good thing. That's what I wanted to kickstart that, help kickstart that. Yeah. But, um, well, and that, that, that shows that you were early to the game and this game is mature, right? I mean, like in 2014, no one was interested in a programmable blockchain or Vitalik. I mean, he, it was literally the best technology investment of the decade. There's not a single venture capitalist who's willing to concede that Vitalik came into their office. And I know he came into their office. He went down Sand Hill Road and knocked on all their doors. And, and they all missed out on three and a half thousand times returns, uh, which is better than Google. Um, and so nobody's talking about this in the Valley, right? That, that, that he came here, he pitched them all, and they were all wrong. Uh, only, I think, Chris Dixon at A16Z actually chucked in some Genius. cash. But yeah. and, and so um, to pick up on things early, is um, very important, right? You picked up on something early, uh, that, that this stuff was really hard to learn. I'm gonna try and stay three steps ahead of my audience and learn it and share with them. And they appreciate you for that. Yeah. And, and you just got sucked into an algorithm that took you that maybe that last 20% too far, which just broke your brain. Yeah. Exact same thing is true for me. I got excited about crypto and blockchain and, and I got sucked into a thing where I needed to build the best app user interface for Ethereum even while all these competitors coming up and like taking it at different angles and engineering something's a lot better than me. And the last 20% just broke my brain. I was like, I just need to, to reset. And so finding that next thing with potential, finding that next vector for growth, I think your desire to search for that is good because the barrier to entry, right, to make content for AI is incredibly low and there's loads of good ways people can learn and then package it and spread it. So it's got to be what else are you excited about learning about that people aren't paying enough attention to? Virtual reality. Yeah. Which we would be talking about, but you got to get your VR headset first. Yeah, yeah. I've played with it five times, but until I've spent a week in it, I can't, I can't speak yeah. from it. Right, so that's, that's another example. Um, maybe that's where you take your direction. If, if you get excited about it, then other people will get excited about it. Yeah. And, you, and I can't just manufacture that for the algorithm. I could. I'm not going to. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it would make you feel... Empty, I think. And, you know, people might be wondering why I haven't made videos in, you know, a month, month and a half kind of thing. I just want to only make videos if I legitimately, genuinely want to. Yeah. And you see every YouTube creator go through this, right? I mean, you're like, John Olson, daily vlog, broke his brain, I'm doing seasons. Seasons, broke his brain, I'm just going to make a video when I want. I'm going to make a video when I want, I'm having a baby, screw this, like, I'm done. And that's like him just showing off an amazing lifestyle, okay? Never mind doing intensely difficult academic study, trying to kind of assemble content and courses, um, that's, you know, trying to uh, involve enormous communities. Um, 
those things are very challenging, Siraj, and, and, and I would say there's, God, what, maybe a thousand people in the world? Fewer, maybe 500 who've tried to do what you've done and actually got to that level of reach. And so, you're, you know, I would, t I would definitely take criticism from those people. Yeah. But this is something I say all the time is that I really struggle listening to people talking about startups, investing, or running a company who have done none of that. Right. If you've never started a company, if you've never invested your own money and lost it or, you know, seen it gone sideways, and if you've never run a company, you know, you can make interesting sideline observations. Like I can comment on somebody riding a horse past me, but I cannot speak to the inner details of riding a horse because I've never done it. Right. And and so, and this is something I'm trying to get better at, is I, I'm listening very carefully to criticism from someone like you or some of my friends who are phenomenal founders or people who are, you know, repeatedly, demonstrably, provably great investors. But if you're an anonymous account on Twitter and you're hurling some abuse from my LinkedIn and the fact I got fired, like, good luck penetrating my brain anymore. It's like the, the, the walls are get building and, and, and the gates are there for the, you know, the fucking guards and the sentries and the people who are like savages. But if you're just some pauper at the corner throwing, throwing your feces at my, at my kind of castle of defenses, then it's, it's just not going to land. Yeah, as it should not. It no, should. And, and there's just very little to learn from the criticism of those people when they have no experience doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a search. It's a search. Yeah. You've got to keep searching. Absolutely. There's going to be something. <clears throat> yeah. But it's, it's also a real privilege, I mean, to go around East Denver and almost everybody there to rec in the Ethereum community to recognize me, whether they like me or not. I just have so many interesting people wanting to say hello. And I, I had this experience with you when we were in London and you ran one of your meetups. And there were just dozens of people who wanted to meet you and say thank you. And never forget that because the people who have benefited from your work are probably too busy doing their job to get involved in the drama. It's the people who haven't benefited from your work are just sat there achieving very little. They want to Yeah, it was so crazy. On. Like, I, never yeah. in my entire, you know, I've been doing this for years. Yeah. I'm super engaged with the community. I've never seen people who don't watch my content yeah. all of a sudden they're super engaged with me totally it's like who are these people and these yeah. people have social media presences yeah, yeah 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 and they just like but here's the thing my of all the mistakes in my course the, there was only really one mistake mm -hmm. i made mm -hmm. i didn't hire help mm -hmm. there you go that was it yeah and you can bet i'm not going to do that again <laughs> yeah absolutely that was like lesson learned yeah totally and and also you you had there was an honesty to your I'm learning this and then I'm sharing it with you and I'm making a fun rap video to share a meme about this because everything else is so dry and I'm yeah. spicy as fuck and this is totally random and, and different. Uh, that, that it was exciting and interesting. What, where, where, you, where you get into trouble, right, and, and this is for me as well, is when I set expectations of myself that I cannot meet and I'm trying to meet them on my own. And, yeah. um, and both of us made that mistake. But most people get to make that mistake with an audience of five to ten, right? Their, their team, upper management, and their family and partner. You know, making it in public and the, with any kind of audience, and yours is much larger than mine, is, it's something that very few people experience, and it's, it's not fun. And it's crazy to even think that I would even attempt that now. But, you know, that just goes to show what the algorithm can do to, like, your state of mind, where yep. you really do think that you could teach a course to 700,000 people alone. Totally. You actually believe, I, I actually believe that I could do that. Yeah. It, just having somebody to like um, bounce ideas off of, like, should I say that there's only this many students can join and then not? Yeah. Would have 
save me like so much pain. Hundred percent, and that I think is why both of us have come back to Silicon Valley, right? Is that there are people here who will not bullshit you. Who, you know, if you yeah. spend time with them and sit down for coffee, they're not going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tell you how it is because they're in the business of seeing the world extremely clearly and not only the world as it is today, but how it's going to play out. And this is what I say to people sometimes when they're, they're kind of getting up in my grill or, or criticizing me is like, let me know if your kind of internal rate on return on your set of capital is 30% a year. I mean, if it is, I'd love to chat to you more. And if it isn't, maybe we just are disagreeing about how the world is. But like so far, I, I think I'm more in sync with reality than you. And I've met people who are, you know, 100, 200, 300% a year internal rates of return on capital each year. Just they are so in sync with the reality of the future. And, and so for you to acknowledge that mistake and to say, okay, I wasn't right on that respect, that's totally reasonable and like very, um, very understanding. But when you're in LA, people would fawn over you for this amazing audience you've built. Yeah. But, but in Silicon Valley, people are like, well done, it's a YouTube channel. Now, what else are you gonna do? That was another mistake, just moving to LA mm -hmm. and like, you know, they say, you know, the cliche is that people are superficial in LA. So true, it's so true. Everybody that I met, um, yeah, and you know they say that cities have their their thing that everybody is you know striving for. Totally, in LA it's fame, and San Francisco it's impact. Yeah, it's like cool to be nice here. It's cool to be like a kind person in San Francisco. Yeah, and then, and well in LA if you're successful, everyone has to know your name. Yeah. Whereas in San Francisco, if you're successful, everyone kind of knows your product or your company or your startup or the thing you worked on or designed. And sometimes they even don't know that. You just kind of anonymously work on that. Um, and so there are rhythms to these different places. There are reasons that these regions produce you know, incredible entertainment content or incredible software or, thing, or you know, in New York, kind of incredible amounts of financial concentration. Um, and... I don't know, just being vulnerable and being honest about those challenges. I hope people can sense that both of us have been through the meat grinder. It's really easy to talk about the high flyers of Silicon Valley and the founders that have done really well. We're not that level, okay? We're not the upper echelons of the, of the food chain here. We're middle of the pack, um, not, not at zero, certainly not at you know, vast fortunes. And, and, but we've tried our damn hardest. And one of the things that I think a lot of people are getting an education in is what it's like to make your own money or not know where your next paycheck is going to come from or not having financial security. We've lived in this state of financial insecurity for years where it's this volatile set of income. You can have a great contract, you make money there. You can have a crypto go up 50 times and make money there. But then it goes to zero the next month. And this just erratic existence is now what I think many people in the world are entering. And it's just shaking them all up like rats in a cage. Whereas, like, well, this is just Tuesday for us. Um, not that we're experts in it, it's just that we've subjected ourselves to this kind of level of financial abuse. Mm. Um, any founder or anyone starting things has done the same. For sure. Yeah, it's the, the SF story in many ways. But it's not in the sense that it's not the headlines, right? We've not right. had that kind of marquee tentpole, it's all gone well, glittering success. It's the... It's the grinders. It's the it's it's what I think most people can achieve in Silicon Valley, which is if you are here and you put in the hours and you spend time around good people, at some point you will get exposed to an opportunity 
that can totally change the course of your career. It, can, it doesn't feel like a you know stepping stone. It feels like a teleportation device. Yeah. You know, five rounds up the ladder. Yeah. Um, and I know so many people who've walked through that teleportation device. You know, to just totally different outcomes. That's exactly what it is. Um, just not achievable in, in other cities. Like when I got fired from Twilio, and you know you were you know we were messaging and you know I was just like making videos kind of. Yeah. Not exactly sure what I was doing, and you're like, yo, you got to make some money or else you won't be able to live in San Francisco. You're not going to have enough funds, and you were yeah. right. And I, was, you know, I had a little small severance, but I was, I was going down. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just to like continue doing that despite with all the uncertainty. You know, I was so elated when six months after I got fired, Udacity came up to me and they're like, hey. Totally. And also, you ignored everyone who was like, Wait, wait, what's going on with the Twilio situation? You know, should I be doing the videos? And you were just like, all right, I'm going to make this work. And that's what I mean about that. When you were forced to put that level of grind in, there was, there was a, an intensity to the focus that is hard to maintain now, right? I mean, right. you really had to make it happen um, yeah. and bend your craft and like, get those videos to, to work. And, 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 and yeah, and, and so yeah, not everything has worked out to plan. Not everything has been perfect, made mistakes. But, but to me, I hope that is a more... Um, relatable experience, then you know, we are not on the cognitive level of the Vitalik Buterins or the Patrick Collisons or the, you know, Elon Musks and people who idolize those people are bound to fail. Yes. But as we sit here five years on from when we kind of first roughly met, we can all say that each year we've learned something and taken that forward to the next year. And I, I am five years up the ladder further than I was and a few rungs up the ladder in terms of you know, getting off zero. Yeah. But and that I think is way more accessible to more people and way more achievable. I mean, one thing I say to a lot of people, for instance, is, do you have you know? And we'll just go back to the earlier point. Do you have twelve months of savings? Because I don't know about you, but cognitively, um, once I hit twelve months of savings, my brain just totally changed. Like it was just like, wow, I, I could fuck around for six to nine months and still get a job and be just fine. And, and not everyone could be rich, but I do think a lot more people could look at their outgoings, look at their income and think, can I increase one, decrease the other a little bit? And, and, and um, I much prefer it when you focus on trying to increase the income. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, hopefully these, this discussion, this conversation, the, the, this, this interview is revealing the reality of people who've tried to make it in this place, um, have left for a little bit, uh, because of different reasons, and come back because we enter this new decade, we enter our 30s um, thinking, okay, we know a few things, we know a few people, we have a you know, little bit of capital to play with, and we want to try and really help more people and, and build and be part of things that are more interesting. So that's not the Silicon Valley darling story, that's the Silicon Valley reality, uh, and we enjoy it. That is Silicon Valley reality. Yeah. Trademark symbol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, unfortunately, the Silicon Valley show has actually been really great for this area because it just rinsed it so hard. You know, so you watch that show? Yeah. I stopped watching it religiously, but skimmed a few of the episodes recently and caught up on some of the things. I don't yeah. know why I can't watch it. It's just too real. It's like watching my own life. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe with the whole kind of Filecoin stuff that we were involved in and things yeah. like that. I think it was kind of heavy, the, one of the seasons was heavily based off Filecoin, one of the most meanable yeah. projects. Speaking of Filecoin and Juan <laughs> Bennett and idol idolization, mm -hmm. which is something that I'm very prone to, and I think you are as well, or you were at some point. Um, maybe not. 
Like I'm talking about the like, you know Steve Jobs, tech CEOs. I think I've tried since. I would argue that like Patrick Collison is like the most competent CEO in Silicon Valley, and since then I've had like a fascination with like could I find anyone that makes me feel like that guy made me feel, mm. um, just by being around such phenomenal energy, and I misfired on that pattern matching a bunch of times, and I think I fired correctly on it like three or four times, and that's been exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say um, been curious about finding people with that intensity of focus. And I thought I'd found it um, in, in a project like Filecoin, but actually, yeah, I think it it is one of those projects where it was running before it could walk, and it, it felt weird. Very weird. Um, at the time, I, I don't think I've ever been so certain about any investment I've totally. um, wanted to do, just because I one was my roommate, sure. I read the paper while he was writing it the yeah. first third. And yeah, I think that we got nothing. There's nothing there. No following. <laughs> well, it's 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 promised at some point, but yeah. but we can certainly say that I think that in every organization there is raising capital relative to your progress, and when those two things get out of sync, it just distorts any organization. It doesn't matter how great the CEO is, mm-hmm. uh, and so you see this with WeWork, right? I mean, it is just raising capital at valuation, like it discovered a new way to organize atoms. And the reality is, it's just an office business that should trade at a 3x multiple. Mm-hmm. And like when those two realities came in sync, it was extremely painful. I mean, I've been I've been toured around the WeWork office from someone who was acquired there, and he described their project, their kind of messianic vision, as building an operating system for atoms. I mean, it just, I was like, for atoms? Yes. As in, they, they really viewed their ability to analyze the office space, allocate desks, and kind of locate people as some kind of messianic mission to organize minds in the most kind of efficient way. But the lived experience for most WeWork people is this is an easy office space to rent. Right. And like just that delta between the mission kind of statement and reality was so excruciating. Um, Very Peter Diamandis. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything's an exponential. Well, you know, um, it's there's a lot of reasons he hasn't achieved the status he wishes to achieve. Right. But yeah. Um, who, uh, who, so, okay, you know, a lot of people respect Peter Diamandis, but, you know, it's probably misplaced. What do you think about Peter Thiel? Yeah, I mean, um, he, how can I put this? I think there are a lot of good reasons that he left Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, he's clearly brilliant and he's held up as this absolute genius for locating Facebook and writing zero to one and being a chess master and incredible investor and hardcore CEO at PayPal. Um, But people who I know who've been close to him um, feel that he conducts himself uh, with his his personal affairs in a very strange way. Mm. Um, I I mean, at some point, that is all going to come home to roost. I met him when he visited Stripe, and um, we, we kind of, at that point, I had no insight into him at all, but, but it was, I had this kind of sadness about him, this kind of sense of um, discomfort. I don't think I've ever felt it. It was almost like a, a dementor sucking on my soul a little bit. Um, I think everyone was too scared to chat to him after he, he spoke. He talked about how all that mattered was becoming a monopoly. Um, his ability to read the room is incredible. I mean, he was 
totally right about Trump. Trump was tapping into uh, an incandescent rage in America that coastal um, individual kind of uh, press were not picking up on. Um, but yeah, not someone I would aspire to emulate in any sense of the word whatsoever. Mm. Um, uh, you've got to respect his ability to spot great, talented people and get them motivated. But um, there is a reason, and it doesn't take much Googling, that um, he's left town. There's a reason that um, he's been asked to leave certain companies. And there's a reason that um, some of his parties are pretty pretty challenging places for certain people. Um, and quite frankly, I don't have any fear in just saying that. Like, I mean, I don't think he conducts himself in the most ethical way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not not that he was he's your hero, but they say never meet your heroes because you, you figure out. Yeah, I, I've not really ever understood that um, that meme. Quite frankly, I mean, yeah. I've been fascinated to meet certain people that I've looked up to. I mean, it's yeah. been it's rare, but it's, it's it's amazing. What do you think of these phrases in general, like uh, patience is a virtue? Yeah, or, I hate that one in particular. I believe in patience is a virtue. <laughs> like, like, I mean, if you're really going to pick a side on that one, I mean, let's be honest, do we want things to happen slower? Do we want things to happen at a kind of more leisurely pace? I mean, you only get what well, you spend the first 20 years figuring out your kind of brain and ability to move your own body and how to like interact with, with letters and numbers. And then you kind of spend 20 years figuring out if you can actually contribute anything to the economy. And then in 20 years, you've got to kind of, you're, you know, getting usurped by the, the younger class. I mean, and, and, and so you don't have long to get things done. Mm. Um, you've probably got like 30 good years to your career where you have the energy, the capacity, the education, the money, the, the, the flow, the, the, the network. And then there's a new generation who are vying to clip at your heels. Mm. So no, I'm, I'm impressed with people who are kind of impatient in a way that gets people excited. Right? Not like impatient with a waitress, but like impatient to see things happen, to see yeah. things change, to see things shake up. It's crazy that these phrases are so embedded into our consciousness via yeah. cultural contexts. And yeah, also, totally. But, you know, language matters so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How you see the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even that, that phrase, time billionaire, just for some reason that lodges in people's heads. Because yeah. billionaire is such a kind of divisive word nowadays. Right. We're so irritated by the number of these people. Anand Giridas. Yeah, like, just, uh, sorry, explain that to me. Anand Giridas is like this guy who's like coming up really fast, who's just, his whole um, shtick is shitting on billionaires. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's just, it's one of those kind of populist pushbacks on these people have too much um, once you get over a certain number of assets. I mean, a book that's really eye-opening to me is, has been uh, Moneyland, where once you get above $10 million of assets, and there is just no way you're paying tax. Once you get above nine figures, $100 million, you know, you can just have a, full, a small fleet of accountants just moving your money in ways that allows you. So the billionaires kind of have all the lasers on them, right? They have lots of eyes on them. In general, they kind of, you know, they, they understand that compounding effects, it makes no sense to flout the law too much. It's the folks in the middle, it's the, the 10 to 100 million pack that you really want to kind of dig into. They're the ones who run all the shadow networks and the shadow funds and everything. You know. mm. once, you get, once you get into the big leagues, there's so many eyes on you, it's not worth it to you to, to be too, to push the envelope too hard. Mm. Um, there's a great book, you know, that, that was, it was 
talk about Thomas Piketty's kind of on capital, and it can be broken down into one thing, which is capital compounds, wages do not. Wages go up linearly, capital, you know, compounds exponentially, and just it keeps tearing up the fabric of society every time that exponential gets too great. Mm. Um, we're just seeing another tear. I mean, to see 20 million people lose their jobs and the stock market rally 20% at the same time is just such a break uh, in, in, the, in the kind of um, economic fabric. Um, and it's happened several times before when the money print has been switched on, where stocks rally whilst yeah. jobless, you know, number of people employed falls. Um, but my goodness, it's, I don't think it's ever happened in six weeks. Like it usually played out over years. Money printer go money. Yeah, that's the meme every every Bitcoiner loves right now. I always wonder how it sounds. I just imagine it being like a high pitched. Like, yeah, I was more like a mechanical, like, brrr, like no. um, money printer go. Brrr. Yeah, and like it's fascinating. If one thing that crypto has got people to do. And like this is, I think, its number one contribution to society is to ask how does money actually get made? Mm. You know, every conversation I've had with people about crypto, just start with a very simple question, which is what stops a country that's not America just creating dollars out of thin air and just having money? Like what stops Eritrea or Iran or Iraq just Inventing dollars, sending them into the forex markets, and I'm sure there's some kind of watermark it. in the dollar. Well, just digitally. What? Well, why can they not just construct computer code that can just create dollars, feed them into the forex system through Hong Kong, and suddenly have a part of assets? Because there must be some kind of um, secret way of making them physically. Some tutorial, step one through ten, where you need a certain type of material. And there's layers to the actual dollar bill, yep. maybe. So there's loads of computer systems, right, that are checking the numbers. But the real answer is nuclear warheads. Mm, yeah. Like, if any country was to actually start just creating mass dollars and bribing the people who run the systems uh, in forex markets that trade dollars outside the US and sleek those dollars into the system through lots of they would just bomb them into oblivion. There is no computer system that has been created that could like stop them necessarily getting that done practically. I mean, you could just invade certain levels of the U.S. financial system, but at the bottom line, it is the U.S. motherfucking army. Right? They will just every boat in the sea travels at the pleasure of the U.S. Navy. And since we agreed to go on the dollar standard, and they promised they wouldn't print more, but they did. Um, the most powerful currency in the world. And look at the, de the demand for the dollar right now is skyrocketing as everyone needs to settle their debts in dollars. Hmm. But it's this gigantic accounting system. And, and, and so what crypto has done successfully, what the one thing that's really positive is it started, you know, 100 million conversations or more probably with people that have gone quite intelligently where they've gone, huh, how is money created? Hmm. Like, where does a dollar come from? Where does a pound come from? Where does a euro come from? You know, everything's wrapped up in these terms like quantitative easing and interest rates and kind of, you know, asset-backed securities and things like this. But at the core of it, who creates new currency? And, and then you start to realize that currencies are just markets. They're just things that countries market to the world. And now we've got currencies that are made by robots. And we'll see. Even better, hopefully. Just different. Just different. Just new. Hmm. The, the thing that we can always say is that when people come into office and they have a four to eight year term, and they know that the money printing doesn't get felt for three to 10 years. Yeah. It's a huge incentive to print, right? Because you want to deliver, you want to print more capital so you can get it done, you know, print more money so you can get it done. 
and then you let other people kind of foot the bill. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so that kind of dislocation time between the political career of a short-term politician and the long-term impact of changing the, the way in which money relates to value, um, that certainly is a conversation that's very hard to have to, with people um, because it makes them feel so uncomfortable. Hmm. Uh, I, at least that's some of what I found over time. Interesting. I haven't had that conversation, but it's, it's interesting to, to note that. And it's also interesting to note that uh, this space is still super exciting and, and active despite all the ups and downs. And yeah, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, we're running out of time. So yeah. I want to end on a question for you that, you know, this, this channel, whatever the topic is, whether it's data science or medicine, it's always going to be about education. Yeah. Um, so what is, what is something that you want to learn next, given mm. where you are right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Maybe it's a skill. Yeah. Yeah, so I have been beginning to learn Solidity, which is the programming language where you can write smart contracts for Ethereum. And I've wanted to get a better understanding of what the process of formal verification looks like. And to um, there's a, a set of tools for writing correct software, which I believe are referred to at a high level as formal methods. And like one of the more extreme bands of that is formal verification. And the kind of range of things go from kind of test-driven development all the way up to like more extreme things. So understanding more about what is required to write correct code and correct code that you can be sure about and code that you can kind of go to sleep at night and know that you've done the right thing. Um, I think that's going to be increasingly important in the field that I'm like designing products for and investing in. Um, so kind of deep diving into that. Um, but then uh, something that is just, um, I guess just uh, like interestingly more is, is, is how how will Apple's headset, you know, Facebook's headset, um, everybody's attempts at different augmented reality, like how will these new 3D interfaces work and what would design for that look like? Like how could I kind of spend time there and, and feel like I could build a world that would make me feel at home? Um, what tools um, kind of use uh, to kind of express my ideas in that world? I've been so focused on kind of 2D screen design for the phone and laptops um, that you know, and then it just starts with trying these things. So, and my headset arrives soon, so I'm excited. I'm excited too. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard. And uh, it's been a, it's been a good chat. Hope to talk soon. Yeah, man. Catch you later.